Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Sarah Bay Jung of York University, and I am joined this episode by Brian Herrera of Princeton. Brian, are you done with the semester yet, or are you still working on stuff? Um, the classes are done. The students have a week or so of labor um, before final projects come in, and then they get to start on finals. So it's a sort of a, it's a ever receding sort of measure of stress. But everybody's done. They're just not finished with their work, but they are done. <laughs> just they still have work to do. It is. It is interesting how the how the the time that one is one takes to to be done with the semester is greatly um, unmatched sometimes by the actual uh, way in which the semester may or may not be done with you. So <laughs> I totally appreciate that. And, and thanks for taking time in the midst of all that to, to be with us. Um, we are also pleased to welcome this week two special guests. First is uh, repeat customer Elizabeth Hunter of Washington University of St. Louis. Hello, Elizabeth. How are hello, you? Hello, hello. I'm good. Thank you. And how you, since the last time we, we had you on the podcast, you have made the transition from San Francisco to St. Louis. How has that been for you? You know, it was fun. We, we came along Route 66, historic Route 66, when we drove from California to St. Louis this time. Um, and it was uh, nostalgic for an era that maybe never existed. <laughs> which, which, which is really the best kind of nostalgia there is. It really is. Yes, and um, and also our other special guest, um, very pleased to welcome from theater and performance uh, right here at York University, uh, Ian Garrett. Hi, Ian. Hello. As a special guest of the podcast, I have I have one question for you, um, which is, who is your favorite academic arts dean, and and why is it Harvey Young? <laughs> <laughs> because it's not Sarah Bichung. Uh, good. I totally. Uh, I totally. Because totally it can't be answer. because that would be a conflict of interest for the purpose of this recording. Uh, absolutely. With full a, disclosure, um, my dean is Sarah Bajan. So. <laughs> uh, 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 so it is. Um, but but I think we can all uh, you know tip our coffee mugs for the morning to um, our absent uh, co-host uh, Harvey Young. Winner this year of the Distinguished Scholar Award through um, American Society for Theater Research. Um, so congrats, uh, Harvey, and we look forward to talking with you again in the future. Uh, we're excited to have uh, Elizabeth and Ian this week uh, because we are covering the metaverse. Um, and so in this episode, we're going to start with an explanation of the metaverse. Uh, is it a thing? Um, and then explore the possible implications for performance and finally what this might mean for digital theater, including issues of accessibility and equity. But first, before we get started, I'd like to turn our land and historical acknowledgement uh, over to Elizabeth. Yes, thank you. Um, so I'm joining from the campus of Washington University in St. Louis, which is located within the ancestral lands of the Illini, Missouri, and Osage peoples. In addition to acknowledging the history of this land, I would also like to acknowledge that uh, like new technologies, which we're discussing today, a historically white Western canon of dramatic literature has also been a potent tool of cultural oppression and erasure across multiple lands. Because theater and performance are carried out with and on live bodies, it is vital to understand this history recognize its continued impact and make space for artistic and scholarly work that counters this oppression. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, and, uh, and welcome to everyone um, this morning. 
So um, kind of building on, on some of this acknowledgement and the, the, the bleeding between of uh, different kinds of technologies, histories, language, um, and, and how those shape our, our material reality um, and also our understanding of it. Um, we're we're talking this time about about the the metaverse, a phrase that's been around for a while, but came to recent uh, awareness for many of us um, on October twenty eighth, uh, earlier this year, twenty twenty one, when Facebook founder and CEO uh, Mark Zuckerberg announced that the Facebook holding company was changing its name to Meta. Um, and no uh, literary scholars, you're not hearing that wrong. Uh, it, that's it. That's the whole meta, but he doesn't actually mean meta. Um, while some have simply cynically argued that this was simply a rebranding attempt to counter, um, increasingly bad PR, Zuckerberg presented the change as the dawn of the new era of the internet. That is the metaverse. So we thought we should dig into this further and explore what it might mean. What is this phenomenon? How should we distinguish hype from a more lasting and influential shift? So we've asked uh, Ian to be with us uh, to help us kind of navigate this. Um, Ian, can you explain a little bit about the the metaverse sure. and what this might mean for us? Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll do it in 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 brief to get us there because it has encapsulated so much that trying to like articulate everything that might be included in that is probably um, going to take us to the ends of of the metaverse. Uh, the the term actually comes from um, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, which is a definitely not like. It's not a uh, guidebook to how we might, and for those who are unfamiliar with that that uh, important piece of cyberpunk literature from 1992, um, uh, in it, uh, with people going into the metaverse as an alternative to reality, um, are presented with uh, the ability to essentially hack or, or, or disrupt people's neural systems through their connection to it. So perhaps we don't want to go in, in that direction, but for for the moment being, we're using that metaverse term to sort of talk about everything that's in this um, uh, collective virtual shared space. Everything outside of like being beyond the meta part of the universe in which we are. Um, I find that the hardest thing to, to put a name on is actually what that real is. I like Beth Kate's term carbon space because um, the term meat space makes me uncomfortable um, but or the IRL part of uh, part of things but it, it sort of becomes everything beyond that as well so as we're looking at the emergence of uh, virtual reality or the re-emergence right now the popularization of it right now through the last couple of decades uh, VR growing AR um, and these things becoming part of um, uh, the digital overlay into our real experience and our real sensorium that becomes what that that interconnectedness of those different technologies is what we would would call the metaverse um, a couple of ways of, of thinking about it we've been hearing a lot over the last uh, 10 years plus around the internet of things all of our connected devices I sort of th liken the metaverse to the internet of human things um, it's it's that digital layer of interconnectedness that's uh, connecting everybody together with overlays and different immersive experiences expanding our own um, with the recent change for uh, Facebook um, it's sort of uh, in, in their model I sort of liken it to Plato's Panopticon somewhere between the, the cave and concept constant uh, surveillance, but I'm sure we'll unpack that a little bit more as we get there. Um, but it can be so many things to so many people in this moment of convergence that really what we're seeing is um, 
well, for lack of a better word, an, an attempt to sort of like colonize the ideas in our mind. It's following those laws of marketing uh, to get it there. But it's sort of everything all around us connecting us and, and, and as it comes more into our sensorium from just our screens, uh, uh, as the internet has become per pervasive uh, throughout the last, you know, 20, 30 years of our, of our interconnectedness. I, I like this idea. Well, uh, I, I maybe like is not the right word. I appreciate <laughs> the framing of this as an idea of um, uh, the internet of human things. Um, it does also remind me that just a couple of days ago, there were uh, news articles that Elon Musk has announced that his Neuralink implants will finally be ready for 2022. So again, the ways that you can control the internet of things and, and, and machines uh, with your mind, which obviously has interesting, you know, potential health benefits and, and lots of, you know, good stuff, as well as, well, you know, some things we might think of as slightly more problematic. Um, uh, Elizabeth, Brian, what, what was your reaction to, to, to the Facebook uh, announcement and, and the ensuing discussion? I had um, uh, kind of had to reel myself back from extreme irritation with the <laughs> Facebook announcement um, because it wasn't an announcement of anything. It, it was, he, he hasn't made anything. <laughs> and I don't know if anybody else has seen the commercials that have been circulating for Facebook of um, like the, that Rousseau painting that suddenly comes to life. And then the people who have gone in, the kind of super um, cute Gen Xers who've gone to the museum to go see the Rousseau painting and then the tiger and the bull come to life. And then suddenly the people are in the painting and then the tagline at the end is, this is going to be fun. And uh, what is the this? <laughs> What's this? What did you make? You haven't made anything. So that notion also, or maybe fantasy, of being able to plug into some kind of matrix alternate universe and live that eugenically perfect, created by engineers in Silicon Valley version of what they think the world should look like while your body just kind of sits in a chair um, is it bothers me in conception and doesn't exist in execution. And that's uh, that's way m more aggressive than I really planned to be today. Um, but that is my that's my feeling on the Facebook announcement. Fair enough. Brian, did you did you get to watch any of the announcement videos or anything? Um. Uh, yeah, I just didn't know what I was watching. Um, I mean, it was like, it was, that was, I think my reaction was very similar to Elizabeth's in that I just really had no idea what was being discussed. Um, you know, I had no idea if this meant we were all going to be Sims forevermore. I didn't know if this meant that we were now going to be doing this kind of digital, digital cyborgian land where we would sort of, and it brought to mind immediately, honestly, um, one of the narrative threads within a, a, a British dystopian uh, series called Years and Years, where one of the sub characters decides to opt out of humanness to sort of uh, become what in the series they call transhuman, where she becomes a digital entity. And so I just didn't know exactly what the promise and the appeal was. Um, and um, 
And so, of course, being who I am, I started scrolling through recent cultural texts that were sort of experimenting with some of these narratives and uh, trying to figure out what these all... But yeah, I think that that Elizabeth's comments really helped me to understand that um, part of what was being spoken to was the other, uh, in addition to carbon space or meat space, the one phrase that I have used often lately uh, in the last few years that has taken on different register in the last two is shared airspace is this digital alternative to shared air um, of, of what often performance makers fetishize is sort of breathing in space together. But what is that? Did what is the digital reality of being together? And I realized that this is a, a, a way to try to sort of market that this is coming, but also given my age, this has been coming my whole life. So I just don't <laughs> understand like what's different with this announcement other than it's ominous because it's connected to Facebook. That's the only thing that felt differently ominous with this one. As, as opposed to familiarly ominous? Yeah, well, yeah, no, I mean, it was just like, uh, just like, oh, yeah, yeah, let me know when that's real. Like, that was my thing. Like, you're going to put <laughs> you're going to put a big plastic box on my head and make me decide to play along and walk into walls. Like, yeah, like this, this just meant it felt that there was like a lot of money behind it. And it might actually become more real sooner. But I still was really like, wary and clueless. I felt like that I was a mix of wary and clueless, I think I will say. I think that sense of smoke and mirrors is was was it's not accidental that mm -hmm. that sense of there's something mm -hmm. and you don't quite understand it because you're not in the tech elite but yeah. something is coming look over here is uh was it that like that wasn't just that wasn't just you that was uh, by design i i think to distract attention um and well meanwhile what is more interesting than the kind of facebook fantasy of things um, for me is what Niantic is doing mm -hmm. um, and with overlaying on the real world. And some of yeah. that is like the tech infrastructure of it. Like not very many people have the plastic box that goes on your head. Kind of, uh, you know, it, regardless of the euphoria within the tech bubble of Silicon Valley of like everybody's into VR. Who is everybody? Not everybody has the plastic thing that goes on your face, but an awful lot of people do have the small plastic box that goes in your pocket. Mm -hmm. um, and so that Niantic's uh, goal to use mobile augmented reality and kind of put this overlay on what you're seeing already, to me seems much further along in terms of actually making a thing, but also in terms of um, being broadly accessible to yeah. more more folks than somebody who's has the time to, to put a box on their face and sit in a room for two hours. Yeah, it's also, a, a, you know, it's a little bit cooler of a medium in that it's um, like, it's allowing the real world to do some of the work too, um, and allowing the reality to be constructed in somebody's head, and so as opposed to like strapping a, a, what is essentially an Android device, uh, a mobile phone onto your face, like in a plastic box, hopefully ergonomically, uh, for a long period of time, that it, it really tries to to meet the user much closer to where they are than trying to bring them to someplace else. Because all I could think when we were uh, when, in watching that announcement and watching this is that if you ever see a demonstration or when uh, there's announcement for a new video game release from like one of the, the AAA studios, it always has the uh, not actual gameplay disclaimer on the bottom of it. And I was like, this is not actual mm -hmm. gameplay. This is, someone rendered it for marketing purposes. Well, you know, I'm, I'm so two things. One, I'm struck by the fact that, but there is, a, is an attempt to, to create a more integrated visual 
uh, interface. I mean, you've got the, you know, Facebook is already, you know, co-branded with Ray-Bans to create, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their, their, their glasses, their sunglasses, but also you can purchase, you know, eyeglasses with the, with the built-in recording mechanism. Um, but I'm actually, I, you know, I mean, we've had, and I think most people have experienced augmented reality for a very long time. It hasn't been visual. It's been audio. And the, you know, I see a lot more people with, um, you know, earbuds and headphones on moving through space than I do um, VR headsets. What's, I would think that the the augmented reality, you know, kind of metaverse is going to come in through our ears rather than our eyes. Um, you know, what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, I'd, I'd say that, that, that if somebody's saying like, well, I don't know if I've had that experience, if you've ever used audible turn-by-turn directions, that's a form of augmented reality. Otherwise, you don't have that information except that it's being digitally layered over to, onto your experience. So I think um, I'd agree with that and also say that um, it's going to be a lot easier to ease that in because we've gotten so used to like having those audio, uh, audio prompts uh, with virtual assistants as well, um, depending on whether or not you allow them into your house. Uh, again, getting back to that Plato's panopticon of what is the world that is actually being served to you. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that that's true because there's, there's also a technology gap that that addresses in which playing audio is relatively straightforward and getting that to someone's mobile device or whatever device that they're at, again, meeting them where they are, as opposed to, you know, right now, if you wanted to use, like, the, the best version of visual AR, through ARKit on like a, a Apple device, you'd be looking at I think the 12 or the 13, like the the most high end version of the most recent high end phone uh, to get the the lidar sensor in it. Um, and the vast majority of people aren't working with that level of device. Aren't going to plop down two thousand dollars in the last two years just for their phone. Um, and audio will be able to bring us into there because it's still got a lot of the same sensing capacity. And I think the familiarity aspect that Sarah's mm-hmm. talking about also is really important. Like when Walkman came out in the, which I may or may not remember, um, <laughs> that the the notion of like, oh, is there going to be Walkman theater was really compelling because there was the, the mm-hmm. nature of experiencing the audio was such that like they, people wanted to go out into their regular lives and have it augmented by music so that you could kind of hear the cityscape, depending, I guess, on your threshold for being able to turn it up and your willingness to be hit by cars, um, to have the layer of, of um, carbon space life w- augmented by whatever music soundtrack you were putting to it yourself. So that, that notion of my space with a little extra boost um, has is something that, like Sarah's saying, we've been familiar with for a really long time. Yeah. And and I agree with you, Ian, that once the technology is, once the glasses look like mine, I think there will be more of a, a willingness to move out into regular space with visual augmentation um, in addition to the audio. But that, but it's because it allows you to like still do your errands and uh, get dinner ready and like do your work rather than the commitment that VR requires, which is you have to have the time and the space to be able to unplug from the realities of your daily life for a little while in order to go into this alternate space where nothing you do there really helps you move forward in your day. It, it is interesting, though, that that Google Glass, for example, which was essentially trying to do that in a in a fairly light lightweight way, uh, you know, crashed and burned so, so relatively quickly. 
Um, which makes me think, you know, that, that in some ways we weren't ready to perform and to present that level of, I don't know, either invasion, um, on our fellow humans or, um, uh, sort of self-proclaiming ourselves in that space. But you're, you're exactly right, Elizabeth, about headphones. And in fact, we have uh, nomadic theater to, to go to Elizabeth's, um, Grote Nibelink's, um, uh, scholarship on this, um, audio theater, uh, you know, um, uh, headphone theater, some of the, uh, terms that have been used. Brian, in, in sort of thinking about the the intersections and the weaving together of different kinds of performance forms, you know, that we have variations of this. Headphone theater, I think, would be one. You know, as we as we think about the metaverse from a very particular theater and performance studies context, what you know, what are some of the the other kinds of performance or other kinds of theaters that you see <laughs> intersecting here, and and what might be some some I don't know, possibilities or potentialities for, for this kind of work. Well, I think that was sort of the, my, when I was starting to puzzle through and even like coming on here as the sort of the, the person who doesn't spend all my time thinking about these kinds of questions. Like I'm here as the representative sort of like in betweener. <laughs> um, one of the things was I was really. I do often think of you as a tween. Brian, in, <laughs> well, in your right. sensibility. So that makes a well, lot that, of sense. That, you know, there is the 13-year-old girl, girl that will always live inside of me. So um, there is, uh, there. so what I will say is I think one of the things I was really struggling with was what is the performance connection here? Is it, and I was battling between two paradigms, let's say. I was battling between, do I think of this in terms of um, kind of performance technique as a kind of like thinking about motion capture uh, acting and the ways in which we're 20 years after Andy Serkis, Isaac Butler just published a really interesting piece about uh, on Polygon, I think, um, about sort of revisiting Andy Serkis's performance as Gollum and trying to think of it as maybe it did inaugurate sort of new visions of what acting is and these hybridized digital modes of, of voicing and embodiment and these kinds of questions that were in were deep in that moment, but we haven't really paused to think what does it mean for acting to think of it as a as a collaborative entity of somebody multiple like 30 people making a performance like and this kind of question how it connects back to puppetry and ancient traditions of puppetry or ancient ancient traditions of a sort of expanded embodiment in this question of uh, of sort of rigid uh, structures of how one moves one's body in synchronicity with other bodies. Like we have lots of millennia of traditions thinking about what is about the collaborative work making one performance. And so I was thinking on the, the question of what does it mean to act or to make performance in this space. But the mo our most recent conversation actually connected to something I had been thinking about a little bit more recently, which was thinking about how in a lot of theater history, we think about um, uh, of the last 200 years, we talk about there's a sort of a standard assumption among historians of theater and popular performance that the 19th century was very much about audio and about listening to words and about listening to it was sort of and that's of course spectacle was there and it was always in battle, but there was kind of a centrality of the word and that bridged into audio technologies of the early 20th century with radio. And then what we see in the 20th century is a rise of the spectacle or the visual. Many folks first pointing to cinema, but I think scholars have more recently saying it's actually the rise of the televisual. So moving from the audio to the televisual. And I do think what we see, uh, what this is really compelling to me is we've seen for the last 30 years in different ways, interest in the immersive. 
interest in the immersive among theater makers? Like, is this immersive in terms of soundscapes or visionscapes or uh, sort of interactive things? We've seen a lot of before before 2020, there was a huge trend uh, in some ways in response to the election of 2016 of using theater as a space of getting people together and having to interact with each other with all that complexity. We saw these big events that, and many playwrights asking bodies to move in space and getting out of their chairs and moving onto the stage or, or sitting in together for 24 hours or these kinds of things, this, this notion of what does it mean to have this kind of layer and performance as an architecture of connectivity in the space. And so I do think it is an interest, it's more interesting for me to think of it less in terms of technologies of performance, but maybe regimes of what is, what do we look to culture for? And what do we, um, what is the space in which, uh, like, what are we living in an era when folks want immersion? Is that what's, what we're entering into? And is this part of a broader broader spectrum? As you were talking about the audio, the, the 50 years of the, uh, or maybe not quite 50, 40 years of the Walkman, um, you know, the, uh, the question I, I, I was thinking about these ads that are running on Turner Classic Movies lately, because Turner Classic <laughs> Movies has begun launching podcasts. And so now they have these interstitial mm. pieces where they explain to their viewership how to, what is a podcast and how to do it. And so it's this thing, and I've seen it on CBS Sunday morning, like these are demographics that are going to elder, elder Gen Xers all the way <coughs> Um, all the way through boomers and beyond sort of bringing them into this immersive audio encounter and they describe mm. it as saying you can do it on your laptop you can do it on your phone it's very methodical and very verbal but it's also so you can join in to listening to these found tapes of lucille ball talking to her friends right it's the sense of being right there with lucille ball and so it does tap into these questions of immediacy and interconnectivity that i think is sort of under the broad umbrella of connectivity and immersion that i think has been in sort of we might be enter I'm wondering speculatively if that um, desire for connection via immersion is part of what we're talking about here as opposed to sort of motion capture which is I think my first impulse was to go to motion capture but my later impulse as I've been thinking toward this week's conversation has been actually I think I'm wondering if this is the sort of 19th century very much the ascendance of the audio, 20th century ascendance of the televisual, and maybe 21st, we're seeing at the beginning of the ascendance of the immersive. I'm, I'm, I'm troubled by your use of the phrase elder Gen Xer. Um, right? So I, I just want to, I want to flag that as being. Um, That's self-hailing. Uh, That's self-hailing. A little bit of a, oh, oh, at least, yes, but it. At least but, it's but not it, geriatric millennial. It, that's like yeah, a term that's uh, like just cruel. That's like somebody somebody above us came up with geriatric millennial. It, it's so it's so true. Ian Elizabeth, <laughs> I, I I'd like to hear your kind of take on this, both sort of in response to to what Brian is talking about, but but particularly from your both of your own theater practice and performance practice. Um, you know, Ian, you know, has done a lot with. Uh, you know, expanded uh, scenography and and looking at uh, the the context of of making and how mm. that crosses these domains. And you know, I mean, I I for, first got to know Elizabeth uh, through her games and through projects that she was doing and and ways of of working outside. And I'm I'm just kind of curious how both of you, in listening to Brian, kind of trace, you know, this 150 200 year kind of history. How do you, you know, is that how you're thinking about making right now? And what are the what are the implications of of this sort of 
you know, what, what Brian refers to as regimes and maybe a regime of the metaverse. How, how does that affect your thinking about what you've been making and what you might be making next? Um, I think that uh, this notion of the rise of the immersive is is exactly I agree with with that 100 percent. Um, and I think that if we it, it will be interesting to see post pandemic how this returns to analog spaces, yeah. mm -hmm. um, because it was definitely on the ascendant before the pandemic, certainly coming with the, the big chunk of time that Sleep No More um, and the work of Punch Drunk has kind of uh, taken the foreground of that kind of work, but certainly other um, work preceding that, Diane Paulus's work with The Donkey Show, um, I think in the United States in the in the 90s was, was the first um, kind of really uh, publicly well received, um, well known by the New York City literati, um, uh, kind of immersive experience like that. That then Punch Drunk just took the ball and ran with it um, into into a juggernaut, and then the that was starting to branch out. I think at the end of the. 2010s, Ben Brantley wrote, um, you know, a, a review of the first decade of the new millennium, and he pointed to Sleep No More as launching this wave of immerse, interest in immersive theater that was really starting to catch on. Certainly Noah Nelson's work um, with the No Proscenium um, uh, newsletter and kind of gathering of all of these experiences. And then the pandemic came along and put a crashing halt, not only to kind of all forms of theater, but the folks in the immersive community were like, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> here we are in a tiny space. A airspace, shared air certainly takes on a, a really terrifying valence, even when you have the sleep no more mask on. Like, no, not that kind of mask. It, so the thinking in the immersive community about what is going to happen to the analog version of this, fortunately, I think they are scrappy enough and there was already enough conversation with how can we use new immersive technology to our advantage, that the shift to uh, making work in an immersive digital space was not as big of a leap as it might have been for other uh, theater makers. I just did an interview recently with Joanna Popper, um, who's the global head of VR for HP, which is formerly Hewlett-Packard. Uh, Hewlett um, that'll be in uh, Will Lewis and Sean uh, Bartley's new collection that they have coming out, where she was talking about uh, work that they did um, the HP was supporting with theater actors in New York during the pandemic doing um, VR. They were live performers in VR and they had to kind of become their own tech support in a way as performers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that that was a way that they could expand their practical craft and, and also get paid during yeah. this time mm -hmm. of not being able to be paid by doing other kinds of immersive work. And so that's one of the areas that is really interesting to me about about what we'll see once shared air becomes allowable, but also, you know, the notion of doing work with these new technologies um, is is more robust after the pandemic. Yeah, there there's I think that there's part of it is that there's also been some time for the practice to mature in a few pockets. Like when I, when when you brought up. Uh, uh, audio tapes. Uh, my mind goes immediately to like Antenna Theater in, in in San Francisco, which spun off into like every museum tour that you've ever taken, um, uh, and actually came to my mind originally as like, hey, here's a successful theater, not-for-profit theater company who spun off and had a commercial success that they owned that allowed them to, to fund things, um, but has also become. Uh, 
an example for how like a thoughtful approach to performance making translated into technology has applications outside of it, part of how we end up talking about the applications of uh, theater and performance practice outside of, you know, plays like in this expanded idea. Um, and there are, you know, I'd, I've been thinking a lot recently about, because I, I, I grew up in Los Angeles during the time of Tamara, the play, which was, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was referred to in the LA Times after I think it had been running for five years, similar to like Sleep No More. It's just like part of it's the, the, um, the, the created demand because you can only run so many people through that performance at a time. Uh, but it ran for like five, six, seven, I don't know how many years, uh, from the late 80s until the early 90s. Uh, and, and crossing over into this area of uh, the ARG, which, which really informed a lot of the practice in immersive through uh, the, the like, development of, and popularity of escape rooms as being like a contained space in which there is a yeah. puzzle maker controlling these things. So like, having all of these things together has allowed us to have some level of comfort within it, which is it's interesting being in the immersive community uh, through No Pro primarily, No Persenium, which you mentioned, Elizabeth, uh, um, and seeing like the convergence of people that are coming from that, because there are people who are like, we need things for the immersive technologies, uh, but then also having people who are coming from like haunted houses and haunts and coming yeah. from the rise of the themed env uh, environment industry um, as Disney like paid to fly everybody and relocate them. Uh, and that expanded and has been expanding with the opening up of various markets so that there's just a lot of talent creating those that have led to things like Meow Wolf um, as well. And that the, and I'm gonna, like my own relationship to this, I'm gonna improperly quote two things. Um, one, because I can't remember it, uh, I, I always forget it, I've got it written down somewhere, but uh, years ago someone said, uh, told me that virtual reality is less a set of technologies than uh, an achieved state. And so that opens up the idea that all of these different things are on a continuum of, of immersion and that the technology is just an added um, uh, component uh, to it. I'll leave it for that. I'll well, that would be the, the, the Arto framing for sure. Right. Um, Go on. So, well, in, in the work that, that the origins for myself working with a lot of these technologies was around, like, how do you archive site-specific dance work in a way that is effective to people who are there? And so how do you time shift the experience so that if someone comes to that space, what do they find there? What is the media artifact of that? Or can you bring it to another place where you get a sense of immersion for it? And, you know, and I've just been sort of chasing that, that's, that state of that. And through that, there's been a number of different ways in which, you know, coming out of the, like, really informed by Sleep No More, you've got Tender Claws um, and, and uh, The Under, and therefore The Under presents a version of The Tempest, uh, and the desire to bring with using a lot of social VR platforms through, like, Finding Pandora X or... Um, uh, on onboard XR, which is a, now a, a festival run by Brendan Bradley, OSF Oregon Shakespeare Festival just did the Quills Fest, um, commissioning works of bringing this in. And right before uh, leaving Toronto to come to sunnier climates uh, to see my family for the first time, to share airspace for the first time in a couple of years, um, we had just done like a via a bunch of VR films that were inserted into an immersive like one person at a time experience in Toronto as part of like the relaunch of 
TO Live at the St. Lawrence Center, um, which was really about how do you, how do those immersive experiences challenge your sense of what a space that you're walking into could be? And that starting to see those technologies reflect back into them as we get back in person that are like attempting to bring you to, not only have we used stenography, lighting, all of the stage tricks that we have in performance to get you to rethink uh, this space, but we're also going to now integrate completely foreign spaces into that um, and allow that those moments and jump cuts of allowing you to come in and out of the metaverse as well as our invented immersive universe. Okay, so I quick, quick question. I just want to sort of speed round, like just two thoughts on this. How does this change the way we're teaching? Well, uh, my thought is, is that I think it is... Um, what, what it needs to change, because I think this is what we're seeing happening in the industry, is it needs to uh, disrupt, and this is being disrupted in all kinds of ways, the rigid divisions of, of theatrical labor that tend mm. to say that this person is a designer, this person is a writer, this person is a lighting, you know, and so how to find that way, because I think what we've seen, uh, a lot of remote performance that has happened over the year, last year and a half, has found ways where designers have had to work with their actors in a different collaborative register than they've ever had to work with before. And this is an interesting paradox of like, um, there was a network television show where the actors had to do their own makeup and do their own costume, like network television shows that were filming remotely had to sort of have tutorials where the actors, instead of sitting in a chair, would have to take the guidance of a makeup artist to do these kind of things. And so I think that that question of the rigidity of theatrical labor, which is something that the immersive realm and the, and the digital realm has always been fussing with anyway, has now migrated a little bit more normatively into what we take for granted. It's been done before. It's not completely alien to us. It's a little bit alien to the tradition of how theater departments and and performance departments are set up. But I do think there's a cohort of young emerging theater makers who've been breaking those discipline, those boundaries, just as we as faculty have often had to develop skill sets that we might have off offloaded to somebody else, have to work in a more collaborative register. And so I think that there is... Um, is a real need to reckon with the way our departments and our jobs and our habits are structured by rigid the rigid divisions of theatrical labor to understand the future of all of the industries, but then also the potentials that come when folks can sort of understand skill sharing as opposed to skill separating. I think that's exactly right. And, mm -hmm. and I think that bringing that into a pedagogical space, um, for me, it has turned into uh, training students how to speak across their areas of expertise so that they can learn not enough uh, code or enough dramaturgy to be able to t also do code and also do dramaturgy in addition to whatever their home skill set is, but to have enough of the vocabulary to understand what kinds of things a playwright can do or what kinds of things code can do and can't do so that they can have conversations with uh, collaborators who are the experts in that and then make work together. And that has turned into, in my uh, classes, students working in groups of different expertise in order to make a project um, that allows them to then say, here's exactly, uh, here's a, an outcome and here was my role and here's how I talked to people who had a completely different kind of skill set than I do. So I'm, I'm teaching this new class um, in the spring that hopefully will have students from computer science and from film and media 
media studies and from theater studies in the class working on teams. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but that's the, the goal is more teaching them how to have those conversations without everybody being a one person band. So it's not yeah. an arms race of skill mm-hmm. acquisition. It's, it's a, a race to learn how to speak just enough like just enough French to get you to the bathroom. Like that's, that's you don't have to learn French. You got to learn enough French to get on the bus. Yeah. And then and yep. then like that. That's what I'm. That's what I'm going for. Yeah, and that that act of translation is something that um, in another life uh, I went into the themed environment design, and I remember while interviewing for those jobs, there was the role of the the integration expert, the person who knows enough to talk to the engineer, the designer, and the client to like not get them to throttle one another because they are using similar technology. They just need to know enough, and oftentimes you need that person. And I think that you can see uh, like the thing that my mind immediately goes to, and perhaps I'm a little bit biased because uh, I. I manage our our device theater program but that like in these like ensemble based device theater Methodology is that 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 we, I, I think that we're seeing a lot uh, of growth in those areas within a number of our departments. That a lot of those are about because that process is about well, we don't know exactly what the content is, and therefore we don't know exactly what the form is. That there's a lot of necessary like foundation of enough information to have a discussion about like what is the output of this uh, that's getting there. And I also think that that like recently this has been like catalyzed for us, or maybe people are more receptive to it because, you know, with those who have attempted to get really deep into things like Zoom theater, um, it's required everybody, you know, tales of people like like you were talking about, Elizabeth, just loading a bunch of equipment and makeup. Everybody's their own crew working, performing out of their bedroom in front of a green screen. That's going from all levels of, of the field that people are becoming more used to getting hands-on with, with those necessary uh, technologies to allow them to do that. And people are getting set up to, to create work in that way collaboratively. And the one final loop is one of my areas of research specialization is the history of casting and the material practices by which actors get work. And I think we're seeing it, we're in the middle of what will be a radical transformation of how many skills actors in particular are going to need to have to be able to be legible for work because the, the, the uh, expediency of self-taping is now, which was just sort of on the rise before is now locked mm-hmm. in as the primary practice of the first round of auditions. So I think um, every theater department in the country who prides itself on training actors to be ready for the market is going to have to figure out how to do something other than a contrasting monologue, how to create those create the skill sets for their early career actors to be able to enter into an economy that expects them to have a bunch of skills to and, be able to and, present. And, and, and not just the United States country. Yeah, um, but uh, other countries also. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Can I insert something on that point? Yes, I lost please. it before. It was um, uh, the idea, and this comes up because you know, in preparation, we were reading the the future stage, and uh, and this may serve as a bit of a transition to that. But the um, one of the reasons that this is also important, a lot of my research is actually more is around ecology and sustainability as it applies to performance practice, and touring has been the like the the elephant on the plane um, forever in that topic where we can do as much as we want, but moving people around has, has, is typically the most carbon intensive part of that. And mm-hmm. you know the way that we see festivals looking at programming and producers who produce festivals and starting to think about touring 
uh, or even in the commercial sector with concerts and the way that they move around and the way that some of those have moved into the meta space, one of the rationales behind that is that we're not going to be able to justify moving people around like we would before, just sort of like sending people crisscrossing the globe to send work around like we could before. So part of these digital skills are about actually maintaining some of that level of access that touring sought to provide. I wouldn't say that it always has. We can unpack festivals and the economics of participation as well. But Yeah, I think that sense of not being able to go back uh, ethically to some of the pre-pandemic practices, or, or maybe a more effective way to phrase that is to the ethical responsibility to maintain um, the focus on accessibility and ecological awareness is that that's what Magda uh, Romanska at uh, Harvard um, and her meta lab, man, how mad were they? When the Meta <laughs> announcement came out from Facebook, I think she—I think somebody at Meta Lab might have been Magda joked that maybe they were going to change their name to Face Lab <laughs> um, in the wake. But uh, but they're certainly more appropriately named um, than Zuckerberg's attempt. Anyway, um, but her uh, the Future Stages manifesto um, and talking about how there is this responsibility going forward to be more mindful about some of the practices that we adopted during the pandemic for um, accessibility, for employability, for just keeping ourselves alive. We can't just go back to the way it was. I mean, if I could just read um, the end of the future stage green, she says the most important, or, or they say the most important of all, the future stage is now. There can be no post-pandemic return to the old quote normal, which was already broken. The time for courage, vision, and action is now. Um, and I think that, uh, I think there are a lot of opportunities in uh, with these new technologies and whatever the metaverse is going to be. And there is a lot of, uh, I have a lot of concern, the total absence of that conversation when it comes to the Facebook plug into the matrix version of the meta lab or of the of the metaverse which is it like who's plugging in i mean how many people is in the world is this actually relevant to that will have a 200 dollars headset on the, even when it becomes more accessible and it becomes 50 dollars that just bespeaks a, a lack of awareness of how a majority of the world operates on a daily basis that is of great concern in terms to me in terms of how much airspace it's taking up uh, and 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 creative energy, where I th I think that that is is probably also part of what Future Stage Green is is advocating for. Is can we think about technologies and theatrical practices that actually have the opportunity to reach more people than just um, you know uh, folks to whom a plastic box on the face applies? Well, and a big part of what they're they're after there is is looking very carefully at questions of accessibility. Um, but but also representation. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it, I'm really struck by the framing of, you know, performance is a, hu is a, is a human right. And I mean, I, I guess maybe I'd be curious, you know, Brian, I, I think this sort of intersects with, with things that you talk and think about a, a, a lot in, in, in some of your work in terms of, I'm thinking particularly of audience. Um, and so, you know, things that uh, Elizabeth is sort of highlighting of, you know, who's who's plugging in, what are the plugs, um, you know, what was what was your response to the to the to the manifesto? 
I mean, I've I've been thrilled by its existence. I've been thrilled as a reference point. I often conclude uh, certain classes with manifesto assignments, and I thought it was just such an excellent example of what I define as a manifesto. It's a performance document that thinks about rigorously about the past, speaks in the present, but directs toward the future. And it's an exercise in thinking um, in those multiple temporal registers, which very few things other than, say, a play does. And so I think there's something very powerful about it. It also, I thought, really named um, in very different register some of the conversations I've been a part of in the last year and a half around, say, um, the work of Adrienne Kennedy or Marie Irene Fornes or these playwrights that have long had a standing in the field but haven't necessarily had the market share to warrant a production at major regional theaters. And so mm-hmm. there's been the phenomenon where Roundhouse produced this festival of Adrienne Kennedy's work that ended up getting folks to access it. Uh, high quality recorded performances that were done in hybrid reading, reading like it was sort of using, exploiting the the incredible skill set that many theater professionals have of the 20 hour reading of just sort of doing a concentrated rehearsal using sophisticated video capturing, working with new folks, working on the digital frontier of like how to do performance capture. And, uh, opening up this festival of Adrian Kennedy's work, which was accessed around the world, accessed by students and teachers and all these kind of things, and had a huge audience, but was not local to a town in a regional theater that would be willing to produce Adrian Kennedy's work. But then the collateral was that now Adrian Kennedy is going to be produced on Broadway. And so there's this way mm-hmm. in which sort of these workarounds, these threadings through the existing circuits, how can a more robust engagement with the potential of remote access activate existing circuits to work more nimbly and dynamically and holistically and inclusively. And I think this is going to come up around scholarly convening. I think it's going to come up around like the consequences that are coming. I think Adrian Kennedy is going to be a really interesting case example of a beloved playwright who was never produced in a major profile because didn't have the market share to justify the resources. But then how to build that, how to build that awareness, how to build that point of entry. Because I do think there is that point of entry. There is also some powerful words that have been written by folks who um, experience physical disabilities or cognitive abilities and this sort of the capacity to sort of meet a ticket, um, like to buy a ticket and make it to the theater is not always a predictable journey. And so there's been some articulate work around that. And there's also been some really interesting responsive work in the reopening phase of box offices of theaters of all kinds, reassessing the rigidity of their no returns policy. Like there's a kind of way in which thinking about the existing apparatuses when it is building in remote options, building in ideas of responsive practices, how it how it it takes an adapt adaptation, but it is, um, and I think that there is, of course, the banal sort of horrifying ones. Like we've heard, like there's been a couple controversies um, that have come up around. Um, using sort of uh, racial surrogation in VR simulations of diversity scenarios of doing some of the uh, some of the audio uh, audio content uh, sweatshops that just sort of assign people uh, text to read aloud that goes into their audio feeds, but not always being intentional about who gets assigned to read what. So there's been some notorious incidences uh, in the last couple of years where like a white guy's reading this piece by a black woman and it just hears wrong. And But it was because it was just in this quick uh, production thing. So I think the balance is intentionality and productivity here, as it is, I think, with a lot of this stuff is I think the um, 
there's ways to make money off of this and it's not going to be done with intention and that can lead to harms of representation and exclusion. But also I think there's spaces of creativity that the disruption has afforded where folks are having to reassess their operating practices and assess like, oh, how do we get more people in? And a great number of productions have pointed to we've, we our remote productions engaged um, 10 times as many audience members that are in-person one days. And so the advocates for the remote performance have been very... Um, have been encountering a kind of recalcitrance. But I do think there is a way that a document like this manifesto can help give clarity to sort of the co coordinating conceptual principles about why it's actually necessary and not just convenient to think through these things. And I think you that know, the, your, your comment also um, just also reminded me uh, of the Lin-Manuel Miranda and the, yeah. the case for the audience, right? That the recording of Hamilton actually you know, didn't displace demand for the live production, but actually drove drove demand. Um, you know, we're 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 so many interesting <laughs> ideas here, and and we're kind of you know uh, uh, getting to the space. But I I'll just you know before we sort of move on to to drafts, we we also you know in this read um, on Ian's recommendation um, uh, a, a chapter. Um, on uh, against uh, the instrumentalization of empathy, immersive technologies, and social change by Rebecca Rouse. Um, and that's in the what I believe is still the forthcoming anthology or maybe recently published anthology, Augmented and Mixed Reality for Communities, um, edited by Joshua A. Fisher. Um, Ian, maybe just kind of a final comment on, on, on this topic um, around sort of questions of equity, accessibility, and, and sustainability, um, you know, is, you know, as someone who sort of looks at ecological design and, and these questions, you know, do you see the, the, the digital, uh, displacing? I mean, are we going to, are we going to change the ratio? Are we going to, you know, move into this per permanently or, you know, will, will the forces of conservative backlash win? Uh, um, that's a, I mean that with a small C, right? Like right. Small, small C, <laughs> right. theatrical conservation. Yeah. Well, you know, we're seeing many like technologies more and more ubiquitous. So we're going, but you know, as we've talked about accessibility for those who may not have been able to be in person the theater before, or with the ability to add captioning and things like that, the part of accessibility that has come to that I think has come to the forefront with that is then that like um, access data infrastructure is asymmetrically distributed around the world, right? Um, one of the examples that uh, I use a lot because it it, it actually deals with some of the, or that we've got a number of projects working with communities in Northern California around this, sort of up towards uh, southern, what is now Southern Mendocino County, historically Pomo land, is that in, in Manchester, California, which is sort of, I believe, the most west, uh, westwardly outcropping of the coast, uh, uh, is the Manchester cable station, which is there is a literal cable that goes to Japan and to Hawaii to create the internet there. But then, then there is also like the Point Arena Manchester Band of Ponoma Indians that is about three miles, six kilometers away. And they, like there is broadband now in like the the, the community center, um, but it's not distributed throughout. throughout. And, mm -hmm. and, and so even in a heavily populated area, because uh, we've 
in talking to someone like uh, Jacob Zimmer um, at uh, Nakai Theater in the Yukon, you know, he's talking about going to community meetings where they're like, well, how do we get broadband outside of just Whitehorse? And they're talking about low-flying drones with three, uh, 5G antennas on them to be able to actually create that infrastructure. So those infrastructures are based off of, you know, that, that market component to it. Um, and I think that... Um, that has led to one a question of access for when people are, are remotely uh, uh, remote as well. But then also like you know that becomes the that also shapes the audience. And I think that one of the things that like why I return to this chapter um, the, the frequently, even though I think it's yeah I, you're right that it's only been out for about five months. Um, I think it came out over the summer. Uh, that. Um, I keep re- it, it has a call to slow things down because it refers back to a lot of the you know the, the excellent work around community engaged art um, and asset based uh, community development type of work, which is looking at this idea of like working like you need to have come into relationship with those with whom you're creating work, and those within a digital space are very limited right now. Um, and we're in this in this phase where we we have this, uh, and we're sort of biased towards it too in the way that the tech is set up into like sort of bringing in solutions. There's a bit of a colonial aspect to it, and I think that it, it invites us to take a step back, to actually take a look. It's similar to how Future Stages is engaging us to think about like you know what is the implication of this. Uh, that it, it says, like, here are a number of things that we have to step back insofar as, like, how to complicate the process that we're used to in tech development. Um, usually it's, um, I've heard some, uh, people refer to um, most successful tech startups as things that uh, uh, young white men would normally ask their mothers to do. And then they create an app that does it for them. I need a ride, I need my laundry, get me some food. Um, and... Uh, that's not the audience. Like for a lot of the work that we're working on, we need to back up to to understand uh, and come into relationship and reciprocity with a number of different communities to be like, what is the actual, what does the technology actually mean in our relationship, um, and how do we co-create that? I mean that that I feel like takes us right back to where Elizabeth began in the land acknowledgement and recognizing you know that technologies of uh, of extraction and uh, you know, hierar- uh, you know, hierarchy and, and domination have always kind of been been part of that. Um, uh, last comment on this to you, Elizabeth. I don't know. I <laughs> I have concerns about empathy as a concept. I I, I have like neo colonial concerns about whether or not it. It's, I think it's this maybe not the right ending comment and. Be, well, that's, that's Rebecca's yeah, argument also. I, it I mean, is. And, you know, and, and she's, she's, what was the, I'm forgetting the phrase now. What is it? The um, considered compassion? Yeah. Right? Yes, or informed yes, compassion it, 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 as opposed yeah. to, 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 to empathy. I mean, I, I, yeah. I think her argument is, is quite, I, I think, quite compelling it, in terms it is. of how and, to and shift. I'm, I'm glad she's making it because I think that the impulse that she describes at the beginning of that chapter, that her, um, administrator um, asked her, like, hey, can you use VR to create empathy? Which is a question that I, I've been asked by um, 
like some people at Google also, like, do you think you could use M- VR and a story and then like, ma- boom, magically empathy, which is maybe not the right question to start with. Um, that I, how, how, how is empathy just asking for me to overwrite your experience with my experience? And so I, I like that she focuses instead on how can we use these technologies to create this other response because maybe empathy isn't what we should be in pursuit of anyway. We should be in pursuit of compassion and how can we use these tools to illuminate that because at the end of the experience, when I want to unplug from the matrix metaverse, I get to go back to my life that looks this certain way. Um, And so, yeah, I, I think that that, I think that, I'm excited that her work is out there and it, that it's providing an alternative to the impulse um, that I understand for how can we use this new tool to talk. So we'll, we'll finally fix this problem of yep. uh, a lack of empathy by creating an empathy machine. Now that we have a better machine, <laughs> we can do it right. Um, so which, yeah. which kind of goes back to Ian's comment about, you know, the apps doing things that, that, that their mothers should do. And one is like, uh, help me feel and be in relation to other uh, to the other humans in my life better. So I think all of this is is, is so compelling. Um, and unfortunately, we're 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 kind of nearing the end of time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna shift us now to a a non empathetic, um, but um, a considered compassion. Closing with uh, with drafts. So uh, listeners will know this is where we talk about things that are on our mind, new ideas. Things we're playing around with, um, you know, questions we have, perhaps new areas of, of research. Um, but you know, we'll we'll kind of go around and and you know, um, Ian, all you know, as, as you know, my my uh, my you know, friend and colleague. <laughs> what's 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 your draft? Um... Well, if someone wants to go in 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 the in the book direction, sort of where my mind went was, um, and I'd come around to a more recent uh, article that's just available on Medium. But there's some great work being done around like the the uh, digital and uh, indigenous knowledge. Uh, point to like a digital bundle, which is Jennifer uh, uh, Wimbergrund's book, and um, and uh, Hungry Listening, uh, which is Robinson. I don't have it up in front of me. But um, an article that I've been coming back to and bringing this into interactive video game spaces is that uh, Megan Byrne, who is a, a, runs an independent indigenous game studio ba- uh, based in the Toronto area, and formally started the, um, the, uh, the digital program at the uh, Imaginative Festival uh, in, in Toronto before going out to focus on Game Studio, has an article that, that she's read just on her medium uh, or written on her medium called Read Only uh, Sacred Spaces, Indigenous Video Games, A Safe Space from Vandalism and Theft. Um, and sort of these, because a, a number of projects recently have been working in collaboration with um, a number of Indigenous collaborators, uh, that, that thinking about these spaces and this nation building is as access comes together and the ability to form the way that we want the metaverse to be shaped in these, you know, there are communities outside of the tech industry um, directly that are shaping themselves because they have the ability to do that. And I think that looking at these and sort of moving away from, we had talked a little bit about recording before, there's one quote in, in, actually I can't remember if it's, I think it's in Hungry Listening around like the Museum of Carceral Space um, and being able to use digital tools as a way of, um, 
things continuing to live that I, I, I would recommend all three of those. If you want like an introduction to some of these ideas from a maker, um, I would go towards Megan's, Megan's article on Medium. That, that's great. And, and just a reminder that we will post those on the, on the show page as well with, with links for, for people to pursue. Um, uh, Elizabeth, how about you? What's your draft? This is always such a fun kind of part of this show because it also is, a, it, it's a, a wonderful kind of accountability. Like the, it's that question that you start getting asked in graduate school that never really goes away, which is like, shouldn't you be writing? <laughs> right right now. <laughs> so I like that that is even migrated onto the podcast um, of shouldn't you be writing? Um, but this, I have, this is a very niche academic, uh, you know, <laughs> spot. You know, we, we really we just dig into our our area. I like it. I have a project um, that has been on the back burner for the past couple of years that I'm finally getting to bring to the front burner um, to gear up and do my next next digital um, project, which is going to be uh, an audio walking tour that's uh, geolocated, and there's going to be a crowdsourced element to it also about the birth of MTV in New York City in the 80s. Um, and so that's been kind of hovering in the background. Um, my partner had a collection of uh, ephemera and realia that we donated to a couple of institutions um, in New York. And so it was nice to see those materials go home. But there's been an interesting um, uh, conversation surrounding those materials that I, I had not really realized just how linked with the history of New York City in the 80s and um, pop culture and high culture, um, MTV was really a site where a lot of that came together. Um, and so I'm, I'm about to start this project of going, you could go to a space in New York and have an audio encounter in the space where it happened itself. And so we're gonna start thinking about how to work in the material objects that are now in museums, but also um, models for the crowdsourced element of it um, for folks to be able to add their memories of um, uh, memories that are connected to sites outside of New York, but that are all uh, around this notion of when MTV came into people's homes. Um, I, I love this. I, it's yeah. like Janet <laughs> Cardiff as VJ. I think I think it's so brilliant. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm in a space where uh, there's some energy and some resources around being able to create that. But the piece of it that I'm really excited about is being able to create um, a design guide for other universities and then for people to be able to add their contributions um, to what will hopefully be uh, an app. So we'll, we'll, see how we, we'll see how much we can get done with that. Um, over the summer. Elizabeth, if you need help with the awesome. with the app development, that's the, sort of the core of what we did too. We should talk about that offline. Dig it. Thank you. And uh, and finally to you, Brian, what's your draft this week? I'm going to do two quick uh, toasts and then uh, and then a draft. Um, so I want to just get, take a moment to acknowledge the passing of the legendary, the transformative, the important, the just the incomparable Greg Tate, who left us all too soon, too quickly this weekend. If you don't know Greg Tate's work as one of the, um, one of the sort of the guiding voices of the transformation of sort of sound and hip hop and and just sort of the experiential cultures of the last thirty years and the influence we've 
we've lived in great Greg Tate's world since the early 90s. We just haven't always known it. So it was uh, startle, startling to see the news of his passing. Another quick toast, uh, a project I'm part of, Paula Vogel's Bart at the Gate, which is now in residence at MacArthur um, Theater, which stages high-quality, um, well-rehearsed and well-directed readings of plays that never got their fair shot, has just launched um, a really extraordinary piece by Jose Rivera called Sonnets for a New Century. Look look for it. It's available streaming, and it's, ex- it's a perfect example of how the streaming modality is actually a great space for um, new play readings, when, especially when it's rehearsed and well-produced. But the thing that's been on my mind in relation to this week is um, our friend and colleague, a friend of the podcast, um, Robin Bernstein, uh, shared news this week that an article that she wrote that had totally escaped my radar uh, was awarded a prize by um, the MLA, and which got me to read this book called, this article called You Do It, Going to Bed Books and Scripts of Children's Literature, in which Robin Bernstein just sort of does a genre study of books like... um, uh, Good Night Moon and um, Go the <laughs> to Bed and all these kind of things and put them in conversation and ask them, like, what do they do to our presumpt- presumptive notions of power in um, performance? And this is sort of the idea that children's literature is a top down and she uses the genre as a way to open up that actually our reliance on scripts, um, our reliance on sort of narratives of what certain genres mean actually disrupt our capacity to understand how they work in space and time. And in this genre study, it's just a transform example of how interactive certain technologies that are often presumed to be very didactic or top-down open up to be. And it's witty, it's funny, it's filthy. It's just really um, an exemplar of what uh, what scholarship can be at a certain level of, of maturity. And so it was, I didn't expect to find it as generative for me to think about all the um, genres I engage with and their peculiar way of the interaction of what do I do with them and what do they do to me. And so I think it's, even if you don't study children's literature, but you study performance at all in any modality or study the technologies of performance, it's definitely worth looking for. It was published in PMLA, You Do It, Going to Bed Books and the Scripts of Children's Children's Literature by Robin Bernstein, a must read for me this week. It was really fun and it was brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Always a great uh, reminder to to check out uh, Robin's work. Um, Thank you all so much. We are at the end of another episode. Um, So I will simply conclude with my own very brief draft, which is that as we are recording this, I, I, like many others, am anxiously awaiting the release of Matrix Resurrections um, and and the return of Neo Trinity and the whole uh, shebang. Um, And it's a metaverse I think we can all really engage and enjoy and celebrate uh, as we dig into the great canon that is the work of that stellar Canadian uh, Keanu Reeves. So um, with that, I will leave you. Thank you all very much, Uh, Elizabeth, Brian, Ian. Great to have you here today. Um, Thanks especially to Charles, our producer, and of course um, to my original co-host, panel, and Harvey. We will see you next episode. Thanks so much. Tap is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchaba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at York University in Canada and its Department of Theatre with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. 
You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.